You are Locked On MLB. Your daily MLB podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Locked On MLB, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. This is the daily podcast we talk about all of Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. Today's episode is being dropped on the 16th day of December, 2020, and I'm debuting a brand new segment, which is called What If Wednesdays, where I take a look at baseball history and some of the what-ifs, ways that history could have been a little bit this, a little bit that, and what we consider to be standard history in baseball could have been much different if a few tiny things had broken differently. I'm going to be talking about Babe Ruth, but not about his sale from the Red Sox to the Yankees, because that's been covered to death. There's a few other things that are worth talking about. This show is available on the free and easy-to-use Himalaya podcasting app. We're also available wherever you get your podcasts. When you're staying at home during these, well, let's be kind and call them interesting times, be sure to tell your smart device to play podcast Locked On MLB or check out some of the other great shows on the Locked On Podcast Network, including Locked On Fantasy Baseball with Scott Cullen and, hey, Locked On White Sox with Herb Lawrence and Chris Tannehill. And here's a little preview for an upcoming episode. They are going to be guests on tomorrow's podcast and on another podcast that's going to be dropped sometime before the new year. If you want to send a topic for the Sunday request, send it to me via Twitter at Sully Baseball. This show is on Twitter at LockedOnMLBPod, and you can follow me personally on Instagram at Locked, uh, no, at Sully Baseball Podcast. Easy for you to say, hey, I've been wanting to do this for a little bit. It's the off season. Sometimes you need to have little regular segments for the off season. And I've decided to do this for each Wednesday that I'm going to take a part of history where something could have gone a little bit this way or a little bit that way. And what we consider to be reality is very, very fragile. It's You need to understand this about your pal Sully in a way, how I view the universe, okay? Yeah, we're going to take a step back, and this is also previewing my upcoming podcast called Locked On Universe. So I think there is no guiding force over everything. I don't think that there's anything pulling the strings of reality. I think everything is a series of chain reactions. All life, whether it's the cosmos or the oceans, whether it's the weather or architecture or history or language or what's on your Twitter feed or how we look at a baseball game. I think everything is just a series of chain reactions. This thing leads to this, this leads to this. Some of the chain reactions we have control over, some of them we don't have control over. And sometimes, and this is when life happens, the chain reactions intersect. I've said for many years, the greatest way to describe what I think of the universe is Randy Johnson throwing that pitch and the bird exploding. Randy Johnson was doing one thing, a series of chain reactions that included him throwing that pitch in the spring training game. That bird was 
going through a series of chain reactions will cause them to fly that way. And sometimes, by sheer chance, things intersect. And that's when we see conflicts in life. Sometimes those conflicts are positive, sometimes they're negative. And sometimes, from a step back, you think, oh my God, that's so random. That is so random, like the bird exploding. But I think, no, it's not random. It's just a point where these chain reactions intersect. I see life like that, and that's why I try to do good things. Because the more good chain reactions you make, the more positive things you put on life. And so that's how I look at the world, at everything. Chain reactions, try to make as many good as possible. But because of that, if you make one change in that chain, it can go off in a totally different direction. And that is why I'm bringing up Babe Ruth. As I mentioned before, we all know the story to the point where it's almost apocryphal that he was sold from the Red Sox after the 1919 season to the New York Yankees in a cash deal, and the Red Sox couldn't win a World Series for generations, and the Yankees went from being a pretty obscure team to becoming a dominant dynasty, and Babe Ruth played for 15 years as a member of the New York Yankees, leading them to several World Series titles. How many World Series? I mean, Babe Ruth wound up winning um, how many seven World Series titles along the way, and uh, four of them were with the Yankees, and you know the first three were with the Red Sox. Babe Ruth is this interesting character because he almost doesn't feel real. He almost feels like an invention of folklore. And in many ways, he is the epitome of an American success story. He, he has an origin story. I mean, that's the thing. He feels like a comic book character. He has an origin story that he was this, this rough kid in Baltimore living in the saloon that his father, who he looks, you know, looks exactly like Babe Ruth, his dad, the original George Ruth, he was sent to a reformatory school in Baltimore, St. Mary's, and there he met his Obi-Wan Kenobi, his Yoda, his Gandalf, was Brother Matthias, who was his priest at the reform school, who showed young George Ruth how to hit a baseball and suddenly Babe Ruth became this great high school star in Baltimore. And from there, he became the greatest player of all time. There's something kind of mythic about him. Even the, when he was traded, it wasn't just a normal trade. It was a trade from the Red Sox to the Yankees. And it was a seismic shift in the history of baseball. And it wasn't like a, a standard trade. It was one that involved cash of which... There's been a mythology built upon that acquisition because it was a Broadway producer who owned the Red Sox. And so there's become this sort of mythology that Babe Ruth was traded for the money to finance the musical No-No Nanette. That's not exactly what happened. Frazee, the owner of the Red Sox, was using the money that he was getting from the Yankees to finance plays. And eventually he produced No-No Nanette. But it wasn't there wasn't the direct link. But... It makes for a more interesting story. And the, the weird what if about Babe Ruth is the fact that he was, I mean, his stats are just unreal. 
Like, he played in an era where, you know, 11 home runs could lead the league in 1918. And then he hit 29 home runs his final year in Boston, which was the most home runs anyone ever hit in the history of baseball. 29 home runs. It was the record. The next year, his first year playing for the Yankees, he hit 54. Remember, a year ago, nobody had hit 30. Then he hit 54. Then he hit 59. And like year in and year out, he was just putting up numbers. And it wasn't just home run numbers. He led the league in on-base percentage. Nobody knew that at the time. But he would lead the league in on-base percentage. The year he would hit, he hit 60 home runs a year he walked 137 times. He slashed 356, 486, 772. He had a 764 slugging one year. He had an 846 and 847 slugging. Not an OPS, slugging. And regularly, his OPS was over 1,000. People were saying, oh, my God, he's slowing down. In 1933, my God, he's over the hill. A year he had 34 home runs, led the league in walks, batted 301, and an OPS over 1,000. The year where he was washed up, his OPS was 985. That's when I was like, oh, my God, we got to get rid of this guy. Now, the surreal thing was, he was, of course, and we all know this, he was signed as a pitcher. He was a star pitcher. And he would throw 300 innings, 323 innings one year, 326 innings. He threw 35 complete games in 1917. While as a hitter in 1917, you know, he batted 325 uh, and an OPS over 850. As a pitcher, he led the league in complete games. The year before, he had nine shutouts. And led the league in ERA. And led the league in ERA+. Plus. They didn't know that back then. And as a starting pitcher in the World Series, averaged 10 innings a start. While having his ERA under one where he set pitching records as in the World Series. I think one of the great what-ifs of all time is, what if he remained a pitcher? What if they kept him pitching all those years. What if they did what they've been proposing to do with Shohei Otani now? What if he played 150 games a year and 30 of them started, or 40 of them? And the the other days he would play right field. And in some of the days where he didn't throw a complete game, if they would say, oh, we got to take Ruth out, well, then you double switch with the right field. The right field say, hey, hey. Why are you taking me out? I said, well, because we're trying to keep Babe Ruth's bat in the lineup. He would have created records that would be, you know, quite frankly, unfathomable. One thing, just keep in mind this. He won 94 games. I know we're not supposed to look at stats, uh, the, the win stat. And I don't really hold a lot of sway of the win stat, except for this one thing. This was the era where a win stat seemed to have a little more sway because they didn't rely on relief pitchers back then. I made a note of the 1917 season. He won 24 games that year. His ERA was 2.01. He he started 38 games and completed 35 of them. So only three times all year did they call in a reliever 
Now, he also came out of the bullpen three times, earning two saves. That that must have been odd. But what would have happened? He won 94 games in his career. And this is really only starting being a full-time starting pitcher for about five seasons, about really four and a half seasons. So it's easy to think of him you know, waltzing to 200 wins, but 300 wins is a real possibility. And at the end of a couple of seasons with the Yankees, they would let him start a game. And twice he threw a complete game victory in 1930 and in 1933. Both years where the Yankees didn't win the pennant, so the final game of the year, Babe Ruth pitched and won. And showing that, yeah, this is even with him not pitching for eight, nine years, he could still win. He still could do it. The possibility was there for him to be a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher and rewrite the record book. That's one of the what-ifs, I think, in baseball. Now, it, you know, it, it's hard to argue with the Yankees' decision to say, hey, we're acquiring you. We don't care about you pitching. We want your bat. It's really, really tough to look back at that and say, oh, man, they screwed up. They screwed up having him lead the league in home runs one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times between 1920 and 1931. Only twice did he not lead the league in home runs, and those were years where he had a lot of injuries and he wasn't taking care of himself that well. So, yeah, it's, when you look at this what if, it's like, oh, man, you blew it, Yankees. You know, the Yankees turned around the franchise. The Yankees were the obscure team in New York. The Yankees were the one team that couldn't get to the World Series. In the years leading up to Babe Ruth's acquisition, his first year in New York, Brooklyn was in the World Series. And the Giants were the team of baseball, dominating the 1900s, the 1910s, and were about to go on a four-year run of winning the pennant. And so the Yankees were clearly team number three, and the decision to play Babe Ruth in the field, eh, it worked. But my God, how interesting would that have been? If for no other reason, just to say the record book was completely obliterated by one player who was in a reformatory in Baltimore. That's a what if, but there's two other what ifs about his career And I hinted at one of them, which is the effect that he had on New York baseball, because he almost had a very different effect. NBA fans, listen up. The Locked On NBA podcast is getting you ready for the start of the regular season with a special week of team preview podcasts all this week, plus waiver wire editions from Locked On Fantasy Basketball and rookies to watch from draft guru Chad Ford. I'll be tuning in for the preview of the Celtics. Subscribe to Locked On NBA wherever you get podcasts. The entire history of New York baseball almost was rewritten. And the thing 
that kept baseball going in one direction in New York as opposed to another had to do with a minor league team in baseball in Baltimore wanting to sell tickets over a specific weekend. And if one man decided that the tickets sold for that weekend were not as important as a deal he could have struck at a particular time, all of New York baseball history would be different. Now, the reason why Babe Ruth is called Babe is because when he was a high school prospect in Baltimore, he was signed by the man who ran the Baltimore Orioles. The Baltimore Orioles at the time were a minor league team. And they were run by a guy named Jack Dunn, who thought, oh my God, there's this guy in our backyard. He could become a wonderful player and a hometown hero. And so he signed him. This was before a draft or anything like that. He signed him. But in order to sign him, he had to legally adopt him for because that was the only way he could be released from the St. Mary's Industrial School in Baltimore. And so because he had to legally adopt him before signing him to play with the minor league Baltimore Orioles, he was kind of poked fun at it. Oh, he's uh, uh, Jack Dunn's babe. Like, it's his baby. And uh, Jack Dunn's babe, Ruth, and suddenly became Babe Ruth, and the, the name stuck. And so he signed this kid playing in a reform school that no one else could see. But there was a problem in Baltimore, and that was... At the time, there was an attempt to make a third major league, the Federal League. And the Federal League put teams in cities that didn't have a major league team so they can compete and hopefully be a third major league to take on the American League and the National League and throw a real wrench into the World Series. One of the cities they put a team in was Baltimore, the Baltimore Terrapins. And the minor league Orioles had to share Baltimore with the supposed Major League Terrapins, and the Orioles were getting their butts kicked at the box office. And Dunn realized he had to probably sell a couple of his players in order to pay off some of his debts. And John McGraw, who ran the Giants, is the manager and basically made all the decisions in the Giants, who was from Baltimore and was the greatest manager of his time, won pennant after pennant after pennant, turned the Giants into an absolute powerhouse, and knew Dunn, was friends with Dunn, saw Babe Ruth, and offered him $5,000. Boom. Five grand. I'm going to give you five grand. You give me Ruth. Ruth gets to come to the New York Giants. The problem was the timing, because the Orioles were about to return home, and Babe Ruth was starting to draw a few customers into the park, and they were going to play a weekend series of which Ruth was going to start and hit, and he didn't want to sell Ruth just yet, because he wanted to be able to uh, reap the rewards of the box office. And during that weekend... Dunn got a call from the guy who ran the Red Sox at the time, Joe Lannon. Actually, Joe Lannon ran a minor league team 
that was a that had a loose affiliation with the Red Sox in Providence, and the Providence Red Sox uh, man Lannon offered him a deal, which was actually when all was said and done for less money than what John McGraw was offering, but it happened to be timed a little better. And he said, well, I, you know, I can't turn down another offer. Better take this. And so Babe Ruth was sold to the Providence team, which basically kept him under the Red Sox umbrella. And that made John McGraw absolutely furious. And like, you could have taken my deal. You would have made more money. He said, yeah, but I want to make a couple hundred more bucks on the gate this weekend. And then I sold him to Providence. So what would have happened if Babe Ruth had become a giant? Well, the impact on baseball history would have been seismic. Babe Ruth would have come to the Polo Grounds in either 1914 or 1915, just as the Giants were on the heels of three straight pennants between 1911 and 1913. He would have been teammates with Christy Mathewson, who was arguably the greatest pitcher in the history of New York baseball. It was probably Tom Seaver, but you know what? Mathewson has to be in the conversation. Um... High Pockets Kelly, Ross Youngs, Rube Marquand. The team was filled with Hall of Famers, and they would go on to win another pennant that decade. And Ruth was a, was a bit of a wild child when he was in Boston. Well, he would have been playing under McGraw, who wouldn't take any crap. And he was a, you know, McGraw was a tough Irishman from Baltimore, could brawl. And he would have imposed his will on Ruth and harnesses many talent. And McGraw probably would have kept him as a pitcher and a hitter. He was an innovative manager and would have seen the value of, oh my God, every five days we get this kid's arm and and every game we get this kid's bat. And we're playing in the polo grounds where it was like only like 290 down the line. When Babe Ruth wound up playing for the Yankees in real life, the Yankees were playing in the polo grounds. They shared the stadium with the Giants, and he kept hitting late. He, when he hit those 54 home, four home runs, it was because the right field porch was so short. Now, the Christy Mathewson era ended with World War I, and sadly, it also ended with his death as he contracted, you know, he was in World War I, and he, the, the poison gas on the battlefield permanently ruined Matthewson's lungs and he died a young man. But Ruth would have come to fruition in the polo grounds and it would have made the Giants the biggest draw because they would have the biggest star. The reason why the Yankees became the big draw and ultimately moved across the river from the polo grounds to build Yankee Stadium was because they had Ruth. And it was one of the reasons why McGraw was so, you know, adamant that the Giants beat the Yankees in the World Series is he wanted to stick it to Babe Ruth because he, he was so angry that he wasn't on his team. And of course, the way that baseball history unveiled, the Giants remained an excellent team into the 20s. And Ruth could have been paired with you know the Bill Terrys and the Frankie Frisches of the world. And as his career faded out in the 30s, the, the Bill Terrys, the Mel Otts, the Travis Jacksons, the Carl Hubbles, all these people who has remained on the Giants as the Giants remain a dominant National League team winning three pennants and another World Series title in the 30s, Ruth could have been part of that whole thing. And what that would have mean was the Giants would remain the team of New York. Chances are 
the Yankees never have the clout to build their own stadium. Chances are they remain a tenant in the polo grounds, the one team that can't win a pennant. The St. Louis Browns of, of, and Boston Braves of New York baseball history. And when the Giants continue this great run into the 1940s, you know, with the seeds led by Babe Ruth, would that mean that when one of the teams from New York has to move, it would probably have been the Yankees. And people are like, oh man, you know the Yankees? Yeah, I know the Yankees, the Minnesota Yankees. Yeah. Yeah, they used to be, uh, they used to be in New York. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. That's what could have happened. That the Giants would be the New York Giants with his great history, and New York fans would be talking about all the rings that the Giants have won because the seed of the great Yankee dynasties and the money that piled in that allowed them to sign all these great prospects was planted with Ruth. There's one other team that could have been, well, could have been part of the Babe Ruth legacy, and I got to give a shout-out to writer... Uh, Scott Ferkovich, who wrote a wonderful article for Seamheads.com, a great site if you don't know it. Babe Ruth, of course, wanted to become the manager of the Yankees, and the Yankees happened to have Joe McCarthy as their manager, and Joe McCarthy was one of the great managers in baseball history. Again, hard to fault the Yankees for making that decision. The Yankees did not want Babe Ruth to be their manager, although they did offer him a chance to show his managerial skills and manage the team a minor league team in Newark. He thought that was beneath his dignity, and quite frankly, after saving the game of baseball, uh, I, he probably deserved a little better than here, take this minor league assignment. Now, the mythology about him not becoming a manager comes about this sense of, well, he was a wild child, he was crazy, he drank, he ran around, he couldn't take care of himself, how could he run a team? Well, that's a bunch of baloney. Because first of all, he played, he started playing, his first full season in the major leagues was 1915, and his final year was 1935. So he played for 20 some odd years. You know, it's not like he, you know, got wiped out after 10 years. Yeah, there was a couple of seasons where his lifestyle, specifically 1922 and 1925, got in the way. And you can point to that, but after 1925, you could see he was playing 152 games, 151 games, 154 games. Into his mid-30s, he was still hit playing 145 games a year, leading the league. And do you know what? Some other people who are, you know, were a bit wild in their playing days and everything turned into damn good managers. I mean, look at you, Billy Martin. Look at you, Lou Pinella. You know, it doesn't always mean you have to be the stoic type. Hell, I just mentioned John McGraw, who was a big brawler and going to bars and everything like that. So uh, he deserved at least the shot. And the Yankees, because he only hit 288, his OPS was only 985, he only hit 22 home runs in 1934 as he was approaching his 40th birthday, were willing to dump him to a team if, you know, not as a player. They were willing to trade him to a team, uh, but not as a player, but as a manager. And 
not a lot of teams were sniffing at that opportunity, but one team did. And it was kind of a desperate team, and they were the Detroit Tigers. Now, at one point, the St. Louis Browns were sniffing around saying, hey, we can make you player manager. And there was kind of a thought, according to the article that was written by uh, Scott Fer- uh, uh, Ferkovich, was that there may have been a deal that Babe Ruth would have gone in, not just as a manager, but put up some of the money to buy the team and Ruth would have been an owner. But the Tigers were a team that was a mess. They they, had been a couple of decades, this is the mid-30s, and it had been a couple of decades since the Tigers were relevant. And since the retirement of Ty Cobb, they were not really a contender. And they needed to basically shake the team up. And the owner of the team, uh, Frank Navin, who for a while the stadium was named after him, needed to do something to shake the team up and put a, you know, put, a put a box office draw in Detroit. So it was the idea that they were going to try to make an offer for Babe Ruth to come to the Tigers and manage the team and come up as a pinch hitter from time to time to thrill the fans. And this was Ruth's chance to manage a major league team. And this was not managing a minor league team in Newark. This was a chance to manage the Tigers. Ruth with the old-fashioned D on there. Ruth, the manager of the Tigers. And Navin wanted to make the deal. The problem was Babe Ruth made a lot of money as a player, but they didn't make like million-dollar contracts back then. And in the offseason, Ruth made piles of money doing exhibition, baseball expeditions. Exhibitions, not expeditions. But in some ways, they're expeditions. He would travel around the world, including to Japan, including to here, including to there. Places that didn't have Major League Baseball as a chance for people to see him play live. And he would play in all these exhibition games all around the world and make a nice big pile of money. And he was committed to travel to Honolulu, and he didn't get back in time. And he was all set to go, and the Tigers wanted to hear from him. And he said, uh, well, you know, I'm off to Hawaii. I'll call you when I get back. And whether it's apocryphal or not, apparently there was a phone call where the owner of the Tigers wanted to know, where is he? I need to get a word from him. And apparently long-distance calls were different back then. And a little, you know, feeling a little hurt that he was getting the cold shoulder from Ruth. Instead, he turned his attention to Connie Mack and the Philadelphia A's and swooped to bring in Mickey Cochran to be the new star of the Tigers. And the result was the Tigers turned around and won the pennant in 1934 and won the World Series in 1935. Ruth was left holding the proverbial bag after the 1934 season. And when he returned back from Japan, another big trip of his, the Yankees released him. The Braves signed him, sort of making a vague promise they would offer him the managerial job, but they never really meant it. 
and he was just there to sort of boost the gates in Boston. And he had a miserable half season, and at one point he just he up and retired. He had one last great game in Pittsburgh, and then played for a couple more uh, a couple of more uh, days, and then just retired, and that was it. And he never got a chance to manage. Never got a chance to manage the Yankees, and no other team gave him a shot. Well, if he had just decided to make the call before he went to freaking Honolulu, we would have found out one of the what-ifs. The first what-if being what would have happened if he had been a player, uh, a hitter-pitcher. But could he have managed? We would have found out. He would have managed the Tigers. Would the Tigers have gone on to win the 1934 and 35 pennant with Ruth at the helm instead of the being led by Mickey Cochran? I don't know, but you know what? He deserved the chance. He deserved the chance. Instead, he went off to the Braves in 1934, who were dreadful, and in 12 years later, he was dead because eh, he smoked a lot. Drank a lot. Health was different back then. (laughs) Health was a lot different. Mickey Cochran was the player manager in 1934 and 1935 as the Tigers finally won the World Series. And in 1935, as the Tigers were going on to win it all, the Braves, with half a season of Babe Ruth at the helm, or Babe Ruth on the team, went 38 and 115. 61 and a half games behind the Cubs. So what would have happened? Would Ruth have managed the Tigers? Well, it probably would have been successful. They had some decent players on the team, and he would have been there for the rise of Hank Greenberg, one of the players who really, really challenged Ruth's 60 home run. We would have found out. We would have found out. But those are some what-ifs all about the most legendary player in baseball history. And there's going to be more What Ifs on What Ifs Wednesday, which is coming out next Wednesday. Now, tomorrow we're going to be talking with the hosts of Locked On White Sox to talk about this interesting offseason. And then with the upcoming Sunday request happening on Sunday. That's when I do the Sunday. Oh, and by the way, Locked On has a brand new podcast for those of you who are college football fans, and that is Locked On Auburn, which is hosted by Zach Blackerby. I have a soft spot in my heart for Auburn, as I used to do stand-up comedy, and I did a lot of shows at Auburn University. Great college, great kids there, and I've always wanted to see Auburn do well, and I've seen them do well a bunch of years. So if you're a fan of college football and you want to check out Locked On Auburn, Go check them out. They're available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can check us out on the free and easy to use Himalaya podcasting app and wherever you get your podcasts. Talking about the what ifs of Babe Ruth. This is Locked On MLB for what the heck day is it? It's the 16th day of December 2020. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.